All right, welcome back. We move to another one of uh, uh, the Apostle Paul's very, very important uh, writings, and that is Second Corinthians, uh, which is best understood uh, when studied side by side with uh, his first letter. Uh, there is uh, little in terms of the setting uh, between first and second uh, Corinthians. Uh, but to make that connection and transition, uh, I just wish to remind you of a, a few things. Uh, what we come across in Second Corinthians is so much emotional pain that the Apostle Paul goes through. If we are under an illusion that pastoral ministry is a bed of roses, then we are totally mistaken. There are trials and tribulations, and uh, thanks be to God if we don't go through such. But the majority would experience what the Apostle Paul experienced course not to the same degree for some it is even far worse I'm sure some of you have heard of uh, Dendrich Bonhoeffer he was a German pastor yeah killed under Nazi German and uh, those are some of the challenges that you have to face as Christian and Paul underwent severe trials. Now, it is one thing to suffer at the hands of unbelievers out there. It is another thing to suffer persecution or to be subjected to the kind of indignities that Paul was subjected to by the church that he himself had planted. So that is something that the Apostle Paul suffered immensely. And it was all for the sake of the gospel. It was for the good news of Jesus. And here we see him struggling to maintain a relationship with the church that he had planted, the church that he had founded. And it's a huge struggle. You recall from our first introduction that Paul spent 18 months in Corinth, supporting himself through tent making, proclaiming the gospel of God to the Corinthians without payment at no cost to them. Of course, that is not going to be always the case for all of us. There are some who in the initial years of their church planting work who may be supported by their own savings or a spouse who is working 
but the majority, in majority of instances, you are supported by the sending church until such a time that the church that you have planted are able to take care of your needs. In the case of Paul, and for reasons that we are going to see, he says, I didn't want to burden you. So what do you think about tent making? So if I'm a, a, a trained uh, auto mechanic, and the Lord calls me to the pastorate, and the church is struggling to pay me, can I start, or not start, but can I continue repairing people's vehicles, get paid to supplement the church struggles to pay me my salary? Can I do that? Would, 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 would the church ex accept it? No, of a, of a friend who was a pastor in another denomination. His local church was struggling to pay his salary. He had uh, a wife, he had children that needed to be in school, and they were struggling. He was a trained medical licentiate. And so when there was an opportunity, uh, he signed up uh, a three-year contract with uh, uh, USAID, and it was a good job with a good pay. He spoke to the church leadership, look, I've been offered this job, and so I'm asking for three days out of the seven days in a week where I'll be working with this organization. And uh, I'm doing this because I can't send my children to school. Well, the leadership told him to choose between the church and his job. So he, he decided to resign as a pastor and continued to work. As soon as he resigned, another church within the same denomination boom, got him. He said, well, we don't mind. You can do that uh, while you, you pastor us. So the other first church got offended and they differed with the, the other church. How can you get him? You are making him too proud because you'll be getting so much money and you will not be spending so much time on the work. And their reasoning was he needs to be humble enough to get whatever we can pay him. So that's, those, those are realities, right? Those are the day-to-day -day issues that you face in the ministry. You may not go through that, but it's, it's, it's worth knowing. But here was Paul's personal philosophy of ministry. He did not want to burden the Corinthians. And so he labors with, labored with his own hands, planted the church, and it was lively church, gifted church, vibrant church, and all was well, so it seems. Well, uh, I think uh, the circumstances in which you are ought to determine what you must do. Uh, I believe that uh, the pastoral ministry is a work of faith, uh, but at the same time, uh, we are not disembodied spirits that somehow have uh, 
uh, access to food that an ordinary person does not have access to and, and we just get full. Uh, and, and I think someone may be tempted to use the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he sent his disciples to go and buy food in town. They come back, they find him conversing with a Samaritan woman. They are shocked, probably stumbled, though they don't have the courage to say it. And when they offer him food to eat, he didn't eat. You know the answer he gave them? I have food that you know nothing about. And their thought was, hey, could someone have brought some food to him? No. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. Now, you can use that wrongly and say, well, it doesn't matter. Even if you go hungry, just go on, preach the gospel, brother, or you will collapse in the pulpit because you'll be preaching on an empty stomach. So the circumstances in which you are, let them uh, determine and dictate what you are to do. Seek the Lord's face, pray about it, and with a good understanding leadership, the ideal, yes, is where the, 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 the church fully takes care of the pastor's needs and his family. They pay for your accommodation. If they're able to, they, they pay for your medicals. They give you a good salary uh, that would enable you to take care of your family because the Bible says he who does not take care of his family is worse than an unbeliever. So let them not turn you into an unbeliever because they are not supporting you. And where they struggle to do so, and the Lord has given you certain skills that you can make use of, you are a trained and certified accountant, you can do people's books at a fee, and, uh, and they pay you. It's a very common thing uh, in, in the USA, bivocational pastors, it's, it's a very common thing and uh, it's no big deal and no one makes a fuss about it. But you need to be very clear in your mind what has God called you to do and with teaching along the way, I think people begin to understand. Sometimes the lack of support is genuine. It's, it's a country church and uh, just a handful of people are working. Uh, the few others survive on uh, subsistence farming. And sometimes there's a drought and they have hardly anything else to eat themselves. And so you don't expect that uh, somehow resources will be squeezed out of a stone. And so in such instances, I think you can still remain faithful and do one or two things to be able to take care of your family. If they are entirely unable to do so, uh, you can uh, uh, offer yourself up to the other work that you, you can do and get paid while you serve the church part-time. Uh, I think there's, there's nothing wrong with that uh, because we tend to have such a, a, a sacred view, not that it's wrong, such a, a hyper-sacred view of the ministry that once you are in the ministry, you must never, ever, ever do anything else apart from doing the, uh, God's work. Uh, I think uh, uh, Paul dispels uh, that wrong notion uh, by, his, by, 
over his life. So the church is established. And after the first letter to the Christians at Corinth, Paul was only partly successful uh, in persuading to change the minds of the Corinthians and their ways. There was everything wrong that you can think of, and we looked at all those things in the first letter. So he wrote to them, but the, the matters that he wanted them to repent of. Some things changed, some things got better, but not everything changed. So he learns, after they had read the, 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 a letter from him, that they were still beset by numerous problems. They were still struggling in other areas of their Christian lives. And the letter that was written to them to straighten things out did not succeed in straightening everything out. The problems are still there. Now, these problems are connected to and with the arrival of messengers claiming to be apostles sent from the church in Jerusalem. Whether that was indeed the case, we cannot tell. Granted, yes, there were no more questions about the resurrection. There are no more questions about marriage. There are no more questions about eating food offered to idols. But there are still problems. There are still issues that have arisen and made worse by these men that have come. Paul had already dealt with people like this. Remember in the church in Galatia, there were those that came from Jerusalem and uh, were teaching uh, what they believed was the gospel, and yet Paul says it's not gospel at all. But here are some that have come, and they are Judaizers in the strictest sense of the word. They are not trying to persuade the Corinthians to become Jews by accepting circumcision as those others did in Galatia. These men are aiming to persuade the Corinthians to transfer their loyalty from Paul to themselves. That's what they want. And so they are undermining Paul's apostolic authority. They are undermining the people's confidence in Paul. And they are beginning to succeed. They are beginning to succeed. And apparently, the Apostle Paul, when he, after he had written his letter, he decides to go and visit the church. He visited the church for three months. And at the time that he visited the church, these people were there. <laughs> they were there. And that was a very painful visit for the Apostle Paul. What could have happened, we can only speculate. 
but it was not a pleasant thing because they had already succeeded in turning the people's minds and hearts away from the Apostle Paul. And Paul didn't feel welcome. As a result, the Corinthians are now wondering, who do we owe our allegiance to? Who is really an apostle? These, these men are claiming to be. The apostle Paul is, is also one. So who, they are now confused. Who, who do we take to be an apostle? Who is an apostle? Their loyalty had swung from Paul to these men. And so Paul writes this letter to clarify the issues once more. When you read carefully 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 2, you actually discover <coughs> that there are certain letters that the Apostle Paul talks about and contents that he references that are not part of 1 and 2. And, and I said yesterday, that's, that's why some scholars believe that Paul wrote at most four, others think five letters to the Corinthians. We only have two. There are certain things that he says, as I wrote to you earlier, but he's talking about things that are not found in one and two. And what he describes may not correspond to one and two, and, and so it's for that reason uh, that they suspect that uh, Paul could have written some other epistles to them that we do not have. So they, these men criticized Paul's ministry and uh, allusions to that effect are clear. For example, chapter 1 and verse 17 of Second uh, Corinthians was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes and no at the same time? What is he talking about? Well, Paul says, I wanted to come to you in verse 15 first so that you might have a second experience of grace. Meaning, I was there first and I wanted to come again. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. So he made plans to do that. But then they never materialized and so his opponents seized that. Did you see? He's even scared to come. Can you trust such a person? Verse 23. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. You know, after the first letter that he wrote, and whatever perceived harm it may have caused to them. And so Paul knew, yes, I wrote to them, and probably it might be good. Let them cool down and I'll go late. So he said, it was to spare you. So yes, I committed to come, but I did not come. But that should not be used against me. And then people begin to criticize my ministry and say, he's not an apostle after all. Not that we load it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand 
Spain in your faith. So he's seeking to explain, and we'll talk about that a little more. So Paul, when he writes the second letter, it is mainly to defend his apostolic authority. It is mainly to defend his apostolic authority. Well then, what does Paul write about these fresh problems that have come into Corinth, that he is facing, things that have strained relationships with the Corinthian Christians? What does he write? Well, in the first seven chapters, up to chapter 7, verse 16, Paul is giving an expression of his conduct and ministry. Like some of the accusations, he's unstable, he doesn't love us, that's why he couldn't come. And they are even swaying the hearts of the people away from Paul. You see, these are the reasons why we told you, you cannot trust him. So in this major division of the apostle, of the epistle, Paul humbly explains his decisions, he humbly explains his conduct, and he does so in a number of ways. One, he shows a profound understanding of the Christian ministry. He shows a profound understanding of the Christian ministry, particularly in chapter 3. We are ministers of the new covenant. He says to them. But he also shares with them the fact that he, when he suffered, it was for the purpose that he may comfort those that are suffering. Chapter 1. Furthermore, he, he patiently unfolds this Christian ministry to the Corinthians so that they too can understand God's ways. That there are certain things by the providence of God that he does and it is both for our good and for the good of others. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, chapter 1, verse 8, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So you see what Paul is doing in a very tactful way? is reminding them that you see ministry is not simply about your, you receiving counsel from me and the people receiving counsel and help from the ministers. But it's also about them remembering God's servants in prayer. And our members ought to be reminded about that again and again. How many times does Paul ask for prayers from the churches that he writes to? We are not spiritual giants that are not in any need of others' support. And the life of Paul demonstrates that. 
And so he patiently unfolds the nature of the ministry to them in two ways. Firstly, he introduces his letter with words about God's comfort in affliction. And then he explains the godly reasons he changed his itinerary and sent them a confrontational letter. Why did I do that? Well, I wanted to spare you and myself the pain. And then he explains that their unchanged lives are evidence that he's engaging in true new covenant ministry. From chapter 3 to the end, it says, If you do not regard me as a true apostle, if you will not be affectionately endeared to me as before, just be aware of reminding yourselves, how did you come to faith? How did you come to believe? Is it not because of the gospel that I preached to you? Is it not because you received God's word? And that word that you received, I preached. So your very salvation is a testimony of my apostolic calling. So that's what Paul says. You are my sons and daughters in the faith. Am I an, an, uh, an imposter? And then fourthly, he speaks at length about how the all-sufficient God provides encouragement to ministers despite great affliction. We are jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and it is not to us. We may be afflicted in every way. We may be driven to despair. We may suffer perplexity. We may be persecuted and forsaken, struck down, but we are not going to be destroyed. For we carry always in our bodies, the death of Christ, so that the life of Christ may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Death is at work in us. And when we come to chapter 5, he gives us that so complex passage, but at the same time, so comforting. If the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house eternal in heaven. That's our hope. That's what sustains us. So we always are of good courage. We know that we are, while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We get encouraged despite the great afflictions that we go through. And then, fifthly, he tells them how doing God's work as a minister creates a gospel focus. 
it creates a gospel focus. And he describes his lifestyle of enduring hardship for Christ's sake. So that he may make a special appeal to them that in the context of that ministry they may separate from evil. Now, Paul knew that he needed to explain the turbulent nature of his relationship with the Corinthian church. And that relationship had been made worse by the enemies. And Paul now wants to explain. And, and there was the question of the true and false apostleship. And, and he clarifies his position on both these issues. And he draws attention not only to the affection that he had for the church, but also to his conviction that suffering and weakness are in some way an inevitable part of the ministry of God's people. So to cope with the persecution, Paul needs to trust wholeheartedly in God. And by doing so and giving that example, he also he wants to reassure them that he has laid bare his life in the midst of so much that he has gone through and is doing it for their sake. Is doing it for them. So if this is what my life is, do you still doubt that I am not an apostle called by God? So that's the challenge that he puts before them. You see, personal animosities, personal disagreements must be put to right, must be put right, rather, must be corrected. So both the church and the Apostle Paul must be prepared to forgive those who have been And in the case of Paul, he does even make mention in verse 11, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Earlier on from verse 5, he says, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to it too severely, to all of you. For such a one is by the majority is enough, so you should rather then tend to forgive and comfort him, for he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. Who is Paul talking about? The one that has wronged you, has caused you pain, as much as he has caused me pain. Who is he talking about? Could it be the, the guy in chapter one? Um, chapter five, yeah. The guy in First Corinthians chapter five, who had his father's wife. So it does appear that he was at first not repentant, and at first the church did not act on that discipline Paul had recommended. And consequently, these fellows who had come from Jerusalem said, well, is that what Paul demanded? No, 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 don't listen to him. He's not an apostle. And so this emboldened the sinning guy. He said, yeah. So I'll, I'll be in church. I'll, I'll stay in church and I'm going anywhere. 
And it is believed that Paul wrote another letter, and that is what brought about some repentance in these people. And we don't have that letter, so it is believed it must have been there, and that's what he says. Paul says, there are certain harsh things that I wrote to you. And so he's repentant, and Paul says, well, if he's repentant, have him back. Receive him back. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Do this so that you are not outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So that seems to be at play here. Well, pastoral obligations, very quickly, let's run through them. Number one, be as factual and transpar transparent as you can when dealing with problems in the church. Be factual and transparent. Well, what do I mean and where do I get that from? 11 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. For it has been reported to me by close people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now, was Paul right to mention the names of the people that had told him about the problems in Corinth? You know, what do we tend to say, to say most of the times? We give, we hide information. Well, someone has just told me, who has told you, well, let's don't deal with names here. We do that. And then the other person, well, if you don't tell me who has told you, then I'm not going to answer you anything. But Paul was factual. Paul was transparent. And I'm sure he may have even mentioned to close uh, people that uh, when I come or when I write, I'll bring it to the attention of the church that you have told me. And they said, yes, yes, please. Tell them we are the ones who have told you. So we must be factual. Giving sufficient background to issues that we are dealing with helps to resist correction. Because someone may say, I don't know what you're talking about. But when you give them enough information, on such and such a day, you met with such and such a person, you said A, B, C, D, and that was not true, and I need you to go and apologize. You know, you have given them the facts, and how are, going to, how are, they, how are they going to begin to dispute? And in case you are doubting, well, who told me is so and so? Wow. So in the very first chapter, Paul explains what he knows, how he knew, and from whom he had obtained such information and how he intended to deal with it. That's what ministry is all about. Ministry is not about gossip. So this emphasis is important, how you know from whom and where. It's important because it establishes the fact that you are not simply drawing your evidence from slander or gossip or third-hand material, but that you have respected persons in the church 
that have informed you, just as Paul says, I was informed by these people, and he mentions the name where his first-hand source of information came from. When we entertain slander, we are killing the church. Is that what happened? Oh. Yeah, but please, don't mention my name. Don't. You are going to create... Pro then why are you telling me? That's gossip. Go and tell that person then yourself. But sometimes, you know what we do? Oh, is that what happened? Oh, that's very bad. You know what? I'll deal with it. Yeah, but please don't mention my name. No, I'm, I'm, I can't do that. I can't do that. No, don't go in that direction. Jesus says, everything must be established on the basis of two or three witnesses. If the person who has told you is not willing to be a witness, don't follow up on the issue. They must be prepared to be a witness so that the other person knows the ones who are confronting me have facts. And that was well, that's what we must aim at. So you see, the pastors, we come into possession of what we term privileged information. Now, we should know that that privileged information comes with responsibility. So the counsel to us is that we must divulge information only to the extent that it would be of help. So that if the person refuses to name the accuser, then that person must be reminded very clearly that you are involved and therefore we cannot proceed with this matter without your involvement. There's nothing like, please keep it a secret that I'm the one who told you. No. <laughs> Paul disclosed I've been told by close people. And sometimes that creates enmity between members. And I think in Corinth, back in Corinth, there were some people who said, now how could you tell on us? Sometimes you should just keep quiet about certain things. Well, when a matter is serious, it's serious and it has to be communicated. And that's precisely what we see here. We must not be tell bearers because that is gossip. We must be factual and transparent. That is what is expected of us. Even what we know to be right ultimately must be communicated with a high level of transparency. Number two, beware of the celebrity status in ministry and the factionalism it promotes. I'm for Paul, I'm for Apollos, I'm for whoever. Beware of that. 
factions can develop in any church. And sometimes they develop around gifts. They develop around personalities. They develop around just the personal preferences of the members. And sometimes you find that in congregations where there are multiple pastors, people begin to pit you against each other, even when you have such a smooth uh, 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 and perfect fellowship and partnership in the ministry. But the people begin to pit you against each other. So beware of the celebrity status. It means, therefore, that you must be humble enough if your colleague seems to be getting so much attention than you are. It is according to God's grace that we have all received the gifts that we have. So if one has received more grace, remember that grace is not end, it's not deserved, it is God himself who has dispensed it. So if God has made one of you a better preacher than you are, thank God and celebrate the degree of God's grace that is in your colleague. And not to begin to be offended by that. Not to be offended by that. An illustration that I can think of is that of uh, King Saul and young David. King Saul was the first king of Israel. Young David was simply a shepherd. But a shepherd who knew God and loved God and feared God. He takes food to his brothers at the battlefront... Because this Philistine giant Goliath has intimidated the whole nation for 40 days, twice every day, in the morning and in the evening. You're about to have your breakfast. He stands there and is insulting the children of God. Come on, you cowards. Appoint one of you. Let's fight. Let's have a duel. And if he defeats me, we'll be your slaves. And if I defeat him, you'll be our slaves. And no one had the courage, not even King Saul. The little boy sent by his parents, oh, take food, to, take food to your brothers at the battlefront. The same way Joseph was sent to take food to his brothers when they were away taking care of the sheep. So he goes. <laughs> and he hears the pride, tauntings, and scoffing of Goliath. And he begins to ask questions. And his own older brothers rebukes him. What are you doing here? Who have you left those few sheep with? You've just come here to, out of curiosity, watch this war. That What war is going on? You are all cowering in front of this Philistine. Well, cutting the story short is, I want to face him. We, 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 we are not ready to have a funeral just now. Well, yes, I'll face him. 
He faces him. He kills Goliath. And that's where the problem started. The women decide to compose poetry and put it to song like A.B. And they started singing. And the songs go viral. So has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. What? Before I know it, my, the kingdom will be taken away from you. So from that moment, he, dis, he begins to conspire to eliminate David. That's the spirit of competitiveness. Ministry is not like that. If at the end of the service, and everyone as they come out of church, they're greeting the young man who preached for the service. Oh, that was a powerful sermon. Oh, I really love you. You spoke to my heart. As they are passing, they, you, oh, they never do that to me. They never give me that kind of feedback. Well, the young man who never preached, not as long as I'm a pastor of this church. You see the spirit of soul? That's the factionalism that was there. Ah, I'm for Apollos. Ah, I'm for Paul. I'm for Cephas. Oh, be quiet. We are for Jesus. Who says, that's immaturity. Beware of that. Thirdly, we must always strive to cultivate unity and harmony within the church. Strive towards that. And we'll see that again in Philippians. Have this mind in you that was in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must not be full of conceit. Do everything that will promote the unity. So the Apostle Paul says, you are still of the flesh. There is jealousy. There is strife. Chapter 3, verse 3. There is strife among you. You are not, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Are you not behaving like the people around you, the secular world around you that applaud their orators and align themselves to particular philosophers and wise men? That's not the way it is with the work of God. Who is Apollos? What, what is Paul? They're simply servants through whom you believed as God assigned to each. So Paul wants to promote unity and oneness of purpose, of mind, of doctrine. Number four, we learn the principles of decision-making. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 to 10, the use of our Christian liberty. That is not just about, it's my right, I'm free to do what I want. No. Paul says, things to all men, so that I may win some. So there are moments when we are prepared to forego our rights and our privileges and our entitlements for the sake of the gospel. Including foregoing a salary. Sometimes. That's what Paul did. And he did it to cut the ground off his opponents who thought he was in it for money. And that's why he says in the second letter, uh, unlike some, we are not peddlers of the gospel. Number four. Oh, there are sub points under number, number four, yes. The principles. 
freedom to indulge in a particular pursuit or lifestyle or make certain choices is secondary to the purity of the conscience of the whole congregation. B, personal preferences and pleasures must be secondary to what promotes the perseverance and growth of the church. How we listen to and honor one another's concerns about delicate matters may keep our churches from choosing self-indulgence over service, and it may keep us from creating division rather than seeking that consensus in the spirit that will build up the whole body. Those are principles, good principles, how decisions are supposed to be made in the body of Christ. Number five. Be precise and label people's problems in biblical terms. We must be precise. Paul tells the Corinthians that they are acting like unbelievers, people of the flesh, sarkikos. That's what you are, fleshly, earthly-minded. And are failing to behave and conduct their lives like people in whom God's spirit dwells. You are unspiritual. So label people's problems with precise terminology. You know, sometimes it's the use of non-biblical labels and other language, that particularly uh, the use of uh, euphemisms. 